Thank you, Chris. The children are about to leave, and I am so glad that he fixed that picture. Whenever I was down here earlier, looking up this direction, Josh is up here. I'm down here. We're doing announcements and welcome. Look up there, and I see that picture, and I see it crooked, and about drove me freaking crazy. I made a mental note that, that picture is crooked. I got to fix that later. And then I walked around because I tend to forget a little bit, getting busy. Back over here by Chase. Again, I'm looking up that way, and I told Chase back here. I said, "Make me." a note to make sure I fixed that picture after a while. I'm like candy. I couldn't stand it. Yeah, but you're out of balance anyway. Or so it seems. <laughs> I didn't understand it was part of Chris's plot the whole time, but yeah, it worked out. All right. Well, today we're going to return to Nehemiah. If you're here this morning and you have your Bible you brought with you, you can turn to Nehemiah with me. Uh, in the past few weeks, we have been turning to Nehemiah. We are now into our third week of looking into a segment of Nehemiah. And remember in the first week, we got into chapter 1, and we did look at all the verses in the first chapter. 11 verses are written in chapter 1. We found that Nehemiah, besides learning about the wall and the condition of the things in Jerusalem, that he began to pray. He is a man of prayer, and we looked at his prayer quite specifically in verses 5 through 11, and we found it had three components that he had that we should emulate and put into our prayer time as well, that a confession and a forgiveness and the third component of repentance and revival. And then last week, we moved into chapter 2 and only looked at the first eight verses. And we complemented chapter 2 of Nehemiah last week with Ezra, chapter 7, verses 8 through 10, and found that both Nehemiah and Ezra gave us perspective on how we can know that the hand of God is upon us. So today, we're going to leap forward. We're going to make a major leap. We're going to leave the second chapter. We'll come back to it in just a moment for just point of reference. And we're going to leap over to third and go to chapter four. So today we move into fourth chapter. And admittedly, if you're studying through the book of Nehemiah, we will make sure we touch upon all those verses. But this is really not a study as much as it is the Lord leading us into segments of Nehemiah. But if you notice in the third chapter, part of the reason that we leaped over to third chapter is that essentially it begins to tell us as Nehemiah gains insight into what is happening with Jerusalem and the condition of the city and of the walls. Chapter 3 begins to tell you that the, the wall rebuilding effort begins, and it tells you a whole list of names about who is stationed where to be able to do part of the project. For example, in verse 1 of the third chapter, it tells you that the priest Eliashib led the work in constructing the sheep gate. Next to him was the men of Jericho. Next to them was Zachar, the son of Imri. And then next to him, repairing the fish gate, was led by the sons of Hassaniah. All that thing continues throughout the third chapter, as the third chapter tells you men after men after men who are doing things, reconstructing, rebuilding, and responsible for doing so of 11 gates and four towers around Jerusalem. Now, the thing about that that we should note is this, that if you're not careful, reading through the rest of the second chapter, and now into the third chapter, seeing how the rebuilding effort is beginning, 
it would be quite easily to, to just make an assumption that it seems to be going extremely well and that everyone is on board with the rebuilding process. But that is not the case. That is not so at all. In fact, today we find that not everyone is thrilled with the idea of rebuilding and restoring Jerusalem. Case in point, in chapter 2, verse 19, introduces us to the opposition that Nehemiah will be encountering. It says, But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite, servants, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So we learn of some opposition, but we need to dig a little deeper. So allow me to give you a quick paraphrase and explanation of some things that happened post where we left off last week in verse 8. And prior to verse 19, which we just seen the introduction of the opposition, is with Nehemiah in part of the second chapter getting a bigger idea about what will be necessary to rebuild the wall and the city. He rides out in verse 13 by night to the valley gate, to the dragon spring, to the dung gate. He inspected the walls of Jerusalem. They were broken down. Its gates had been destroyed by fire. Then he went on to the fountain gate, to the king's pool. There was no room for the animal he was riding to go under. So he went up by night, by the valley, inspected the wall, turned back and entered the valley gate, and so returned. But I give you some idea by looking at those three verses that there's a lot to be done. And it leads into the third chapter with people beginning to rebuild. But it also then gives us an idea that after he has done the inspection, he understands better the task to rebuild. He sets a plan in motion, which is indeed the third chapter. But after the assessment of the project with the restoration plan in place, opposing forces begin to mount. It's briefly mentioned in chapter 2, verse 19. But we leap to chapter 4 to see there is much opposition from other people, not the Jewish people, about restoring and rebuilding Jerusalem and the wall. Particularly, we'll capture two men by the name of Sanballat and Tobiah. Now, you may be thinking, I've never heard these names of Sanballat and Tobiah. Who are these guys? Well, Sambalat was the governor of Samaria, and Tobiah was most likely the governor of the Transjordan, or better identified as the area east of the Jordan River. And they do not want the city and the wall to be rebuilt around Jerusalem. They begin to mount some great opposition to Nehemiah and the rebuilding process. So with all that, then we turn our attention today to Nehemiah chapter 4. Just a segment of it, the first eight verses, to understand the opposition that Nehemiah will have in his effort to do what God has given him the will to do and see then that every one of us, at some point in our life, as a Christian, as a believer, we're going to have some opposition. So the message applies to every one of us. No matter our age, our gender, we're all going to face some opposition. The message today helps us to be equipped with the opposition that we will face. Again, we're in Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to read the first eight verses. Stand with me this morning as we do so to honor the reading of the word. 
we find in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Well, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And then Nehemiah prays, verse 4, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now verse 6, So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Father. Lord, we thank you for today and the reading of your word. And Lord, today we turn our attention to just another segment of the wonderful and exciting book of Nehemiah. And we pray, Lord, today that you'll lead us into understanding his predicament with his opposition. And then parallel, Lord, that to our modern day lives to see how we too will face opposition as we do your will and as we do your work that you've given us to do. So, Lord, with that, I pray that each of us today receive the message that you want for us to hear today for our lives and for our church to overcome the opposition it will face into our lives. Thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we should observe, as we read these verses this morning, the extent of the opposition which really presents itself in chapter 4 in the first three verses. So note that earlier we mentioned the name of Sanballat and how he was greatly displeased when he heard that Nehemiah had returned to Jerusalem to restore, to rebuild, and to help the Jewish people. Now, we should remember as we recognize what's happening. That Nehemiah, as he was about to return to Jerusalem, we learned in the first chapter that when he heard about it, he was grieved, he was mourning, he fasted, he prayed, and he went to the king, Artaxerxes, and he asked for permission to leave. Remember, he is the cupbearer. And as the cupbearer, he has a very prestigious and trusted position with the king. The king granted him permission, but not only did he grant him permission to leave, he also, Nehemiah, asked the king for permission for material to rebuild. And the king granted all of that. Now, now we can discern as we read through the text that as Nehemiah has permission and the materials, Sambada learns of it. And he is not one happy camper at all. So in the text, 
we should not be surprised then that Sambalat's displeasure turns to intense anger. Look again at verse 1. Now when Sambalat heard, we know this, that they were going to rebuild the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Now that presents what we need to know about how Sambalat felt about the Jewish people going about to rebuild and restore. But I like the words of the King James as well, because it maybe just intensifies Sambalat's disposition about it even more. Because it says in the King James that Sambalat was wroth and he took great indignation towards the effort of the Jewish people to begin to rebuild the city and the walls. Other translations you may have in front of you or may prefer, you simply state that Sambalat was furious and was very angry. But whatever you may prefer for how you may want to understand Sambalat's position on the rebuilding and the restoring, a great understatement would be that he is just greatly displeased. But it goes further. I mean, look again in verses 2 and 3 as you find the Sambalat and Tobiah really resort to mocking the effort in the Jews. I mean, in verse 2, they're looking upon what's happening, and Sambalat says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Which is referring to perhaps them lacking some sort of physical strength. Jokingly, they even make fun by questioning, will they make the finish in one day? Or can they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, which are burnt ones? But if that's not kind of maybe letting us know the way they really feel by their mocking and ridicule, look at verse 3. Because notice the mocking by Tobiah with his comment, you should be able to detect a bit of sarcasm. When he looks upon it, having stood beside Sambalat, he says, yeah, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. That's got to be sarcasm, because I've seen a fox, and so have you probably, and they're not very big critters. They're not probably weighing hardly anything at all on the large scale of things. So it certainly implies then, yes, sarcasm implying that the work that the Jewish people are beginning to do to rebuild and to restore is shoddy, maybe worthless perhaps even pointless and completely meaningless. It's complete sarcasm, ridicule, and mocking towards the effort to rebuild and to restore. What God had precisely placed on Nehemiah's heart to do, these opponents are mocking and making ridicule. So with thinking about that and recognizing that, we have a question we need to ask ourselves. The question being, do you often have people mocking and criticizing you? I mean, in life, it happens to us. I mean, I certainly have had it to happen in my life. And particularly, I've had people I knew who, behind my back, was mocking my faith, discounting it, and making fun of it as being a Christian, suggesting, possibly, I was only doing so because I am weak. And I needed something to lean on, and that was my crutch. 
we get mocked, we get ridiculed, we get made fun of. And if you're like me, it probably has happened to you at some juncture into your life. Maybe you heard about it, maybe you have not. But it seems that it happens to us. That someone that you know in a prior life, I mean, in our lives, we mature, we change. So in our lives, people that you may have known in school or some other avenue of life knew you before Christ, perhaps, and now see you after you've accepted Christ. And they think, just who does he really think he is when he claims to be? I know who he really is. And they mock you. They ridicule because of the fact if you change your life, not who you used to be, the old is gone. The new has come. The new person in Christ has surfaced. And they mock and they ridicule. So if that has happened to you, the question is, what do you do? And one thing we must do is stay the course. Actually, we must begin to prove ourselves to that person. And as we begin to think about that, we need to recognize that we cannot rely on our own strength when it begins to happen. We, we, when we begin to get mocked and ridiculed, really we must turn to God and allow him to strengthen us at that particular moment. I mean, the first impulse we have, honestly, is to be able to retaliate in some way. I'm going to show them but you show them by being honest and true and sincere to your faith. You prove yourself in that way as being genuine to how you have changed in the new life in Christ. So that's how we react. But here is the point that we're trying to make. That God's work that we have to do in our lives seldom goes forward without opposition. In fact, it should be stated that we as Christians and believers should expect the opposition. Expect the opposition. It's not if, it's when it will occur to every one of us at some point in our life. We should expect opposition. Three years ago, my son Tyler, who happened to be married yesterday evening, in 2017, he was contemplating moving from Texas to Indiana. At that particular time, Tyler was living a bit worldly. By his own admittance, he had gotten off the path that God had given to him. He called me several times during that particular year about things that was greatly troubling him in his life. As we talked on the phone, I begged him multiple times to begin to pray and return to God for the answers, but also began to pray with him before we would get off the phone. What seemed like months, but most likely probably weeks later, he called me and said, Dad, I'm moving to Indiana. And as he told me he was moving to Indiana, he told me further that God, he had been praying, and that he felt that God was giving him peace about making a change in his life, about recommitting and rededicating himself to the purpose and plan that God had for him. And he felt like then to move into Indiana and focused upon the calling that God had given him was the right thing to do. Well, I was pleased to hear that naturally. But as we were talking on the phone, do you really want to know my answer to his new direction? 
as he was telling me about this new recommitment, rededication, about moving and focusing and starting over, my answer to him was this. Well, you better expect some opposition because it is coming. You better get ready. Because if you are sure that God has spoke to you about moving away from Texas to Indiana, recommitting your life, renewing your faith, you better get ready for the opposition. And true enough, later he told me it came. And it came from those people who were supposedly his best friends. Now, I use that example of what happened to Tyler to reveal to you that can happen to any one of us. What happened to him can happen to every one of us. And we must realize that the opposition will surface from various different sources and avenues. It could be someone like Nehemiah is facing a Sambala and Tobiah who just want to see him fail, perhaps. Or maybe they're jealous or skeptical or whatever. Maybe it's coming from those types of sources, the people who are opposing you straight at you on what you may be doing. Or it could be people who begin to oppose your efforts, who are people who love you, like some family and some friends who doubt that new path and your refound faith. They could be doubting you and giving you some opposition. Or it might be just the work of Satan himself. But notice it can and it will happen. I mean, the point I'm saying is this, that when you begin to live that new life of faith or the work that you know that God has given you to do, opposing forces will mount up and will try to stop you. They will try to deter every effort that you have to do God's will. But we must press on and allow God to strengthen us because it could very well be a race of tests of endurance. And then as we look to the situation that once again with Nehemiah, we can look then to as he has the opposition and as we have opposition in our lives, how he responded and how we should respond. So go back to the text. What does Nehemiah do when he is threatened, when he is mocked, when he is ridiculed? What does he do? He prayed. Naturally, yes, he prayed. Point number two, when opposing forces mount, pray. And look at Nehemiah's prayer. Verse four, hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let, that, let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now listen. We already know Nehemiah is a man of prayer. We dissected the very first chapter, verses 5 through 11, and found, yes, this is a man of prayer. When trouble comes, he begins to pray. Prayer was a distinct and consistent part of Nehemiah's approach to problem solving. And we should emulate that every time we have a problem, we should begin to pray. It's not the last answer, it is the first. Pray. So then, Nehemiah, when Sam Ballot's beginning to attack him. He immediately asks God for help. Again, look at verse 4. Hear us, O God. Hear us, God. We are despised. It's the beginning of his prayer. 
Okay, but notice something. Notice how his prayer here in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4 is considerably different than the one we dissected and voiced in chapter 1. Remember chapter 1, he had a wonderful prayer. He learned about the wall. He learned about the city. He was grieving. He was mourning. He told us essentially the components we should have of confession, forgiveness, repentance, and revival. But this prayer seems to be different. In fact, like some of the prayers in which the psalmist invoked and lifted up to the Lord of God's condemnation on their enemies, we see Nehemiah's prayer in this instance was also severe and condemning. I mean, he prayed that Sanballat and his cohorts would be taken captive and be judged for their sins. That's what we find essentially in verses 4 and 5 with this prayer. It's noticeably different. So now the question becomes, as we know Nehemiah is a man of prayer, and that was what he did when the opposing forces began to mount, the question really now becomes this. Is there anything wrong with this kind of prayer? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So having now inserted this particular verse from our Lord, about our enemies, the question becomes, I mean, how should a Christian, how should we as believers interpret this kind of prayer that Nehemiah is having against his enemies, especially in view of what we just learned and heard in Matthew 5.44? How can we interpret this prayer? Well, several factors need to be noted as we consider it. First, we'll recognize this. In opposing the Jews, Sembalat and company were actually opposing God. Remember, first and foremost, that when Nehemiah was granted permission by King Artaxerxes to be relieved of his cupbearer responsibilities, we knew shortly after that that the hand of God was upon him. So he knew that he knew that he knew that this was a task that had been given for him to do. God put Nehemiah on this task. So in essence, Samballat and Tobiah are then opposing God in the task he's given God's man to do. Notice, secondly, that God had already pronounced judgment on the enemy. I mean, that's seen the very fact that the exiles were allowed to return to the homeland. And God allowed the enemy for a period of time to be strengthened. But now they rendered the enemies nothing. A third factor to consider is that Nehemiah was praying that God would bring about what he already promised Abraham years, years, years ago upon those who curse his people. Yeah, back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God told Abraham to rise, and Abraham went, not even knowing where he was going. But Abraham went, and God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. So Nehemiah was basically praying, when you consider all things, about something that God already promised he would do for his people. And then fourth, consider this. 
Vengeance belongs to God, not to any of us, not even to Nehemiah and other believers. Paul had written in Romans 12, 19, Avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So there are some factors of consideration as we evaluate and weigh out this prayer that maybe Nehemiah is doing. But we go back to the question. Is there anything wrong with this kind of prayer? If we begin to pray a prayer of some condemnation upon someone, is there anything wrong with that? Man, one answer might be no. If we begin to remember that we should not selfishly bring down some doom and destruction upon a certain individual or an enemy. I mean, recall again, Matthew 5.44, we just burst it, that we are to love everyone and pray for the enemies. But what is wrong? What is wrong with praying for someone and that God would convict them of their sin? Is there anything wrong with praying for God to convict people of their sin? We need to be praying for our country to be convicted of our sin and the things that we do that we know is against God's word. We also need to be praying for people who are greedy, who are selfish, and, and other things of that nature for them to be awakened from the drunken stupor they're in of the sin that they're committing. But at the same time, we need to be asking as we pray for conviction of that person for their sin, for God to soften their heart. And to cut their heart to change. I mean, I recognize if I begin to pray for conviction upon someone, I'm really recognizing that I can't change that person. And none of us can change one another or anyone. Only God can. So recognizing that only God, the Holy Spirit, can invoke some change upon a person, why not then pray according to God's will for conviction of a sin and for life to be turned around. Or maybe now in the case with Nehemiah, as he's certain the Lord has set him on this task, for the opposition to diminish. We just always make sure we have to pray in alignment with God's will. But also then after praying, and seeing how Nehemiah was his first step that he began to pray for the opposition to diminish in this particular case, notice then the Jews continued to work, which leads then to the third point, that when opposition presents itself, stay the course and simply trust God. It's verse 6. After the prayer, Nehemiah expresses this. So we built the wall. The opposition presented itself, he prayed, and he got back to work. We built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. I mean, it's notable here that Nehemiah goes back to work. I mean, some Christians, some people I know, I mean, we'll pray when opposition presents itself, we'll pray, and we'll pray, and then all of a sudden we'll wait and not do anything, and we should wait upon the Lord. But now Nehemiah begins to recognize that, hey, God has given me this task, and there's nothing going to oppose God. And so now I prayed, I'm going to trust, give it back to God, and I'm going back to what he told me I need to do. 
he blended basically the divine perspective with the human. He faced some balanced opposition with prayer and hard work. I mean, once he committed the problem to the Lord, he trusted God to achieve the goal. And they went about doing the work he'd been given to do. It even tells us in verse 6 that it was going so well now, with the opposition even surfacing and mounting, that they've been rebuilding the walls at half its height. So, I mean, at this particular moment, then half the work is done. Now, we're going to find later in chapter 6, as we leap to it a bit later in weeks to come, that it took only 52 days to rebuild the city and the walls. Amazingly, 52 days to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. So now we learn in chapter 4, with the opposition mounting, the people are working so hard, they've already got half of it done. So it's about eight weeks in its entirety or thereabouts to restore the wall. So about four weeks in, it's done. It's halfway done. What happened to the opposition? Did the opposition that was against Nehemiah rebuilding this wall, that reared its ugly head in the form of some and Tobiah, did all of a sudden now, just because Nehemiah prayed and went back to work, knowing that God had given him this task to do, they just roll over and die and go away? No, not exactly. Go back to the text one more time in verse 7 and 8. And notice something that we'll touch upon next week. When Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs, okay, before it was just Sambalat and Tobiah that we heard about, now the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, when all of them heard that the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem going forward and the breach is beginning to be closed, now they're all very angry. It's like they're all teaming together. In fact, verse 8 says that. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And then look at verse 11, just advancing forward into next week. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Now, I've already given away the fact in chapter 6, the walls being completed in 52 days. But notice as we go forward, before we completely end today, the opposition does not go away. It does not just run and say, okay, I know you prayed, I'm scared, I'm leaving. It should remind us that enemy forces are all around us. Satan is the enemy. He's doing everything he possibly can to stop us as individuals and as a church to effectively engage the community and reach people. He hates it. When we have a yard sale or we do something as a baby shower or backpack to invite people to come into the church, he cannot stand that because it brings them into the church. And we witness to them somehow, some way. And we've had people to come and visit and stay after these events. He can't stand this outreach effort. So Satan then, I mean, he would love nothing better. He'd be greatly pleased if we would gravitate back to an old lifestyle and, and, just, and just quit doing that. 
I mean, he would like us when we face opposition, when we're ridiculed, we're mocked. He would love it if we just retaliate rather than just continue to love the person and to ignore it and to pray for them. He would just love it when we get mocked and ridiculed or when we've been told we can't do something. He would just love it if we get so frustrated we just quit. He wants us to be quitters. That's the opposition. That's the work of the enemy. But the truth is this. The Christian life is and always will be a test. As you become a Christian, I hope you did not hear the words after that, it will be easy. Because it is not. It is always a test. And with every opposing force that surfaces, we can either run and hide or face the test and come out a winner and give glory to God. We all need to remember, as we bring this message to completion and stopping point for today, thinking about next week, we'll continue with it. We all need to hear today that God is with us in everything that we do. And he's always there. And all we have to do when we face the opposition is to call on him. We have the power on our side of the strongest man in the history of the world. His name is Jesus. We have that on our side. So all we need to do when we begin to feel the opposition surface, it's not if, but when it begins to happen, we all need to make sure we allow Jesus to guide us and to strengthen us to endure the race and to press on, get it done, and give him the glory. Father, Lord, we thank you for how this message gives us what we need to know the fact that opposition will truly occur, as we have duly noted. And it gives us then the insight that we need about what source to turn to, that we always have prayer available to us, as are you, our Lord. You are available to us every time we'll have opposition to surface in our life. So, Lord, today I pray for all of us that we would be able to pray to you and see clearly the person who is behind and given us the opposition is the enemy. And we will overcome the enemy by your strength. So, Lord, having said that right now, I want to pray for each and every person that's here today. For anyone who may be listening, to recognize that if they're being opposed, if they're being told they cannot do something in your name, I pray, Lord, they would understand that truly they can. They have the strength. I pray, Lord, them directly face the opposition today and recognize they can turn to you and you'll be there with them. So, Lord, we thank you for that, of how you're there with us and how we can turn to you at every moment. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for hearing our prayer now and for helping us face the opposition. In your name we pray. Amen.